Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Brian McGilloway, a crime fiction author from Derry. He's written 11 novels, including the acclaimed Inspector Ben Devlin series, his DS Lucy Black series and one standalone book. Brian has been shortlisted for a CWA Dagger and the Thixon's Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year and the Irish Book Awards Crime Novel of the Year. He's also won the Ulster University Macrae Literary Award and the BBC Tony Doyle Award for his screenplay Little Emperors. He's now back with his sixth Ben Devlin novels and fans are delighted to see the return of this great detective after nine years. And Brian, we'll get back to why you've actually brought Ben Devlin back shortly. But first, I'm intrigued, I suppose, by the fact that you're very busy as a writer, but you still have your full-time job as an English teacher. So that's obviously quite the balancing act. Yeah, it is. And, and thank you for, for, for the invitation to come on and, and, and chat about the books. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I I suppose that the two of them kind of complement one another in a way. Um, a, a few years back, I decided I wanted to try writing full time, um, and I took a sabbatical. Um, and I think over the, the, the course of teaching and writing simultaneously, I kind of trained myself almost into writing for kind of an hour and a half, two hours every day, and 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 that was me. The, the kind of compulsion that I had to write was satisfied with that. Um, and, and I kind of foolishly thought if I wrote full time that I would write far more. And in actual <laughs> fact, I discovered that I was writing exactly the same amount. Um, and, and by about half 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, I was going, right, what do I do now for the rest of the day? Um, so I, I missed it and I missed the, the social aspect of it because teaching and writing kind of complement one another in that teaching's very sociable and, and there's lots of talking and there's lots of people. Um, and then writing kind of suits the introverted part of me that just like sitting in a room on my own and kind of disappearing off into my own thoughts. Um, and one, I kind of find balanced out the other in a way. Um, and just, I suppose there's also that thing about teaching, particularly teaching English, where you, you just have that joy of introducing people to books that you love and being able to talk about books that you love um, and, and kind of seeing how they react the first time they read Lear or read Waiting for Godot or The Great Gatsby or you know, I mean, those books that I grew up loving. There's a real privilege in being able to kind of pass on that that love and that passion. Um, so I ended up coming back into teaching again. And it, it is, I have to say, it is getting quite difficult to balance both. Um, but at the same time, it's also a bit of a privilege to be able to do both. So um, it would be kind of churlish to complain. And it's funny because most authors would say their dream would be able to give up the day job so they could focus on the writing all the time. And you've gone in the opposite direction. Yeah, I and mean, possibly at some stage, again, I would kind of think about it. But I, I suppose one of the things that I discovered, my family were quite young at the time. And when you have more time in your hands, people find things to fill it with. So it's, it's not a case that you're kind of allowed to sit and do things. It was just I ended up doing a lot more um, kind of practical stuff that needed to be done. Um, and, and, I, and I must, as I say, I must the social aspect of it um, and kind of felt that I should be doing more. I suppose at that stage I was in my kind of early 40s and I was sitting days going, I should be contributing a bit more than, than this. And that's not to say that somebody who's, who's kind of writing full time isn't. 
Um, but it was, I think, just because I was so used to doing it um, that, I, that I missed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly at, at some point in the future, I suspect I probably will kind of want to wind down a little bit on one uh, and kind of focus maybe back on the writing full time again. When did the writing actually start? Um, well, I mean, I suppose that the, the, the proper answer would be when I was about eight. So, <laughs> like, it's it's one of those things that all writers probably started writing when they were children and, and started telling stories when they were children. Um, and you even see it from a teaching perspective. Your kids will come to you and, and, and show you something they've written and say, do you think I'll ever be a writer? Um, and you go, well, you already are a writer. Will you ever be published is a different question, but you already are writing. Um so I kind of had that compulsion to write even as a child. I remember writing stories when I was eight or nine. Um, I remember when I was about 15 or 16 writing the Catholic boy and Protestant girl falling in love across a barricade that kind of was was a requirement for growing up in Northern Ireland at that time. Um, when I did my degree, I wrote a story called One So High, which was about two psychiatrists, one interviewing the other to try to work out whether or not he's insane or pretending to be insane. Um, and I sent it to one publisher uh, and they sent it back a rejection letter and that was me. I just kind of write, it's obviously rubbish. I've never shown it to anybody again. It's, I, I still, it's kind of still sitting on my desk. Um, and then the Devlin books, uh, which is kind of the first proper, I suppose, first proper novel. Um, I was in my late 20s. Um, I had, it was just married. I had been reading quite a lot of crime for a while because there was a, a crime bookshop, No Alibis, had opened in Belfast just after I did my degree. Um, and so for about a decade, I'd probably been reading a lot of crime series um, and, and loved those series and loved that idea that there were these characters that you could meet year after year after year and catch up with, almost like old friends. Um, and I remember a lot of the series that I really loved were, were either coming to an end or felt like they were coming to an end. Uh, so Colin Dexter had killed off Morse. Uh, Rebus was nearing retirement. There was a scene, I'm a big James Lee Burke fan, there was a scene in one of the, 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 the Burke books where Robichaud thinks he's taking a heart attack at dawn. Um, and he sits on this park bench and kind of wonders, as I said, is this how it's all going to end? And I remember feeling really sad about the fact that I wouldn't have a chance to meet these friends again, um, these kind of fictional friends. And so I decided I was going to write a story that featured a detective that I, in whose company I would want to spend time. Um, and it was a purely selfish exercise. I was never, uh, I didn't write it kind of thinking I'm going to try to get this published. I wrote it thinking I'm going to have this and I'm going to have it sitting on my shelf. So maybe once a year, if I want to be in the company of somebody that has that sense of kind of justice and morality that I can kind of revisit, I can take it down off the shelf and read it. Um, and, and then when you write one, you kind of go, right, I must see if I can do it again. I must see if it's, it's possible to write a second. And on the first one then, again, as you said, you didn't necessarily sit down to write a novel. At what point then did you realise, OK, I have something here? Um, I, I don't know. Um, it, but to be honest, it was more just the idea of getting it finished. Um, I remember I started it in December um, because the, the first date of the chapter, or the first chapter, I think it's 22nd of December. Um, and I finished it on the 18th of February, which is my mum's birthday, because I remember finishing it. We had it out for dinner that night. That was yeah, quite... Yeah, oh, no, it was. I, I, no, but, but I, I think that's not unusual on a first book, um, simply because you've got a lifetime of stuff. Everything that has ever happened to you is kind of waiting there to, to be used. Um, 
But uh, I remember going out, at, uh, as I say, we, we, we had it out that night for my mum's birthday. And that was the first time that I said to people, I said to my brothers uh, and my sister, my mum and dad, that I had written this book. Um, and and it was more just almost a sense of, I, I actually managed to write one that was kind of 80, 90,000 words long, that that was the achievement, as opposed to it actually being any good. Um, and then I read over it and and kind of reworked it a bit and then started sending it off to people. And it was a couple of years um, it took between my writing it and it kind of finding a home. And how did you, did you get much rejection during that time or much feedback? Um, well, a lot of, a lot of rejection, <laughs> uh, I mean, including from publishers I hadn't even sent it to who possibly knew it was doing the rounds. But um, it was an unusual one in that there was a couple, there was one agent who was very positive about it and who asked me a few times to kind of do things with it and sent notes. Um, and then eventually said, look, I just don't think it's, I, don't, I just don't think it's working. Um, and there was one publisher who held it for about nine or 10 months um, and were really positive about it too. And then eventually come back and said, look, we really love the book, but crime is just so difficult to publish and it's so difficult to get anything noticed. So we're, we're going to have to pass on it. But Look, we think it's really good and we think that we'll find a home somewhere. Um, so it did. It, it took a while um, and eventually it got picked up by Macmillan. Pan Macmillan had started a new um, imprint called Macmillan New Writing, um, which at the time was a little bit controversial because they didn't pay in advance on the book because they only accepted books that had already been finished. Right. Um, and their argument was, well, an advance is to allow you to kind of live while you're writing. Um, and by that stage, I was so... I would, I would have been so happy to have seen it being published anywhere. Um, so I, I was delighted when it was accepted. And then they, because it was the first in a series, they kind of contracted me onto the main imprint then for the subsequent four or five um, fairly quickly. So um, the, the other thing, I suppose, the, the benefit of that delay, if you like, or that, that kind of time period was that I, I had written the second book while I was kind of, still waiting to find a home for the first one. Um, so there was no pressure on the second book. Like Gallows Lane was just a joy to write because I was writing it again purely as a, almost as an exercise to see if I could. Um, and there was no expectation of there might be a readership for this or, or there was none of the difficult second album syndrome with it. Um, in fact, if anything, that came with the third book because the third book it was the first one that I wrote after I had a publisher. And in terms of, of knowing it was going to be a series, had you decided that at the very start or did that come later? No, I think I decided that at the start with, with Devlin. I certainly decided at the start. Um, I kind of knew that this... Well, I mean, I, I say I decided at the start once I finished the first book. Right. I knew that I wanted to write more about him. Um, I think maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, the Lucy books were a little bit different. I wrote Little Girl Lost as a standalone um, and, and kind of had intended it to be a standalone. Uh, and it was only when I finished it, uh, there's something happens right at the end of the book, which becomes kind of a motivator for Lucy to keep doing what, what she does. Um, and it was only when I got to that point that I kind of realized that there was still a story about her that I didn't know and that I wanted to tell. Uh, but but certainly initially, and, and when I first had kind of pitched it to my editor, um, it was it was commissioned as a standalone. Um Whereas Devlin, kind of from the beginning, I had a sense of this is a character that I could revisit. This is somebody that I could spend 
more time with than just this one story. And did you set that out at the start, Brian? As in, I know there's different stories and plots in each book, but in terms of the, the development of his character over a number of books, did you set that out at the very start or did you just wait and, and see how it developed with each book? Uh, no, I just I just saw how it developed. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't really plan that far ahead. <laughs> um, and, and particularly with Devlin, and I think especially with the new one, um, Devlin tends to reflect kind of what's happening in my life and tends to reflect my concerns and my worries at a particular period. Um, and so with, with the first book, with Borderlands, um, as I said, I was kind of newly married. My wife was expecting our first child. And so Devlin, th- that book is very much about he has, he has a, a very young family, his youngest son's still a baby. Um, and it was about him trying to balance being a, a detective and being a good husband and a good father uh, and his role within the community. Uh, and that was very much a reflection of my kind of concerns uh, and my feelings and worries about having a child and, and what that would mean and that sense of responsibility that it would that it would carry. Um, and each of the books after that have kind of reflected then, I suppose, where I am. So Devlin has grown up with me uh, in, in many ways or has aged with me. I don't know if I've grown up necessarily, <laughs> but um, he has certainly aged as I have aged. And what's happening in his life uh, is a reflection of either what's happening in mine or kind of what I'm worried about or thinking about or trying to work out myself. I tend to use writing to work out how I feel about things. Um, and, and Devlin particularly is the character through which I can do that best. So after was after five Devlin novels, then you decided, as you said, you changed tack and, and you moved on to the, the Lucy Black series. So why why did you put them aside at that point? Um, it, it wasn't a conscious decision, to be honest. I, I, the, the publisher, Little Girl Lost, was the book that really kind of broke out um, in terms of it sold very well here and it sold very well in America. Um, and I had moved publisher and the new publisher was keen to get more Lucy books. Um, now, having said that, I, several of the Lucy books, particularly the uh, Preserve of the Dead, which was the third of them, um, started as Devlin's. I kind of started writing them as Devlin novels. So it wasn't a conscious decision that I wasn't going to write Devlin. Um, I started those stories in Devlin's first person voice and they just didn't work. Um, or there was some aspect of the story that just didn't sit with Devlin's world. Um and, and as I was writing them, I kind of realized quite quickly, no, this is a Lucy story. It's not a Devlin story. Um, whereas this, the, the the most recent one from, from I started writing it, it was in Devlin's voice. And I kind of knew that it was his story. So it wasn't that I necessarily put him to the side. I, I kind of joke that he stopped speaking to me. And there was an element <laughs> of that in that I did try to write a few Devlin stories that just didn't. That, that, that didn't take I suppose You had a row you had a row um, and in terms of switching though from Yeah that's it <laughs> In terms of switching from writing from the male perspective to the female perspective how was that? Um, yeah it was okay I I suppose one of the things that I did when I wrote Little Girl Lost I the original idea for it wasn't actually the detective the original idea was about a child who's found out in the snow um, and who has kind of isn't able to speak, but has clearly witnessed something um, that has caused some trauma. Um, and, and, and it came from a friend of mine who was a, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, telling me about how fairy tales are used sometimes to try to identify trauma in younger children. 
Uh, and the form of trauma that they've gone through will be reflected in the fairy tale with which they most associate. Uh, and so I had an idea for this child who was found in the snow who clearly seen something, um, wasn't able to speak about it, and a detective would sit with her at night in the hospital. Nobody would claim her, nobody would come looking for her. And so a detective would sit with her at night in the hospital and would read stories to her just to pass the time. And one of those stories would trigger a reaction, and that would be the kind of the, the, the inciting incident, if you like, the, the lead into the story. Uh, and as soon as I had that idea, I knew it couldn't be Devlin because you wouldn't have a male detective sitting with a young female child. Um, and Devlin had his own family, so he wouldn't be sitting in a hospital overnight with a child. He, he would have to go home to his own kids. Um, and so from the beginning, I knew that it was going to be a female detective. Um, and I wanted, I was kind of wary about her not just becoming a female Devlin. And so... Uh, very quickly, I kind of made the decision to write in the third person rather than the first. Um, and the Lucy books, the prose is a little bit spare. The Devlin books tend to be quite reflective, um, whereas the Lucy books, the language tends to be pared back a little bit. Uh, and then just as I was writing it, I would get my uh, my wife, Tanya, read for me as I was uh, as I was writing um, and, and would say to me, no, you wouldn't do that. And no, that, that's not how that's not how I would think if I was in that situation. And um so, I mean, it, it was kind of, I was very lucky in that I had feedback from her. But I think ultimately we all think in fairly much the same ways. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that there was any great insight into femininity or anything else. I think just we all kind of empathize with people. We all react. We all feel the same way about things. Um, but I was very lucky in that my, my wife was kind of very supportive in reading it and, and pointing out in uh, and, and one of the books, or in Little Girl Lost, I think at one stage she invites somebody to go to the pool with her and, and Tanya said, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that with somebody you didn't quite know. You mm. uh, So there was wee things like that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the next one then was a standalone and in that you've got you've got three characters. Um, so again, you know, first thing yeah. it's a standalone and secondly, it's a slightly different way of approaching it. So were you trying to stretch yourself as a writer at this point? Um, I think I tend to have a fairly low boredom threshold. It's <laughs> possibly the way to put it. Um, and I, I just I, I don't set out to write a particular. Like I, I can't sit down and say, "Right now, I'm writing a Devlin," or "Now I'm writing a Lucy." I will have a story that I want to tell. Um, and, and as I start writing it, I'll kind of work out whose story it is. And with the last crossing. It was an idea that I'd had for some time that I'd really wanted to write. I had tried to think of different ways to tell it. So I had tried even writing it as a stage play um, and none of it would work. Uh, and and then it, it kind of, uh, I suppose the, the thing that marked the last crossing for me, there's a, uh, a kind of a technique in it called concatenation uh, where there's the last line of one chapter, a, a phrase in it becomes the opening phrase of the next chapter. Uh, and it kind of ties the whole thing together and it creates a sense of symmetry and the opening line and the last line are the same, which gives a shape. And it comes from, it was a medieval poem um, that I had studied when I was doing my degree, a thing called The Pearl, um, about a man who sees his daughter in heaven, his daughter has died and he sees her in heaven. Um, and I just remember it was such a beautiful technique and had such kind of shape and symmetry. And crime novels are so often about how the past and the present are intertwined anyway and how what happened in the past impacts on the present. Um, so that was where that idea came from. And I had tried that concatenating technique in Little Girl Lost, actually. Um, the very first draft of it had had two different narratives. 
One narrative had been the detectives in the third person, and the other narrative had been uh, the kidnapping victims in the first person. And the last word of the Lucy narrative became the first word of the, the, the kidnapping victims narrative. And I got about three quarters of the way through the book and just had a brick wall uh, and could not get it to move any further forward. And I ended up having to cut the entire, I, I kind of sat for about three weeks trying to work out what was wrong with it and realized that it was the second narrative. Um, and so I had to go back and cut out, it was about 35, 40,000 words. Wow. Um, just cut it out from the book completely and then finished the book in, a, in about a week, a week and a half. Um, and so I had always wanted to use that concatenating technique. Uh, and with The Last Crossing, I had always wanted to tell that story about three people who have committed an act of violence and how it has impacted on them. Because the, the police procedural is very much about the detective and about how the detective finds out who done it. Whereas with The Last Crossing, the opening scene is who did it. The opening scene is these three people standing committing a crime. So the narrative then is more a wide on it in some ways, but more importantly for me, it was about the consequences of what they had done and how each of them was changed by this act of violence. And if they met 30 years earlier, or sorry, if they met 30 years later, how they'd, how they'd be different uh, and, and how that action would have impacted on them and changed them. Um, so, I mean, I suppose it's just, yeah, they're, 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 they're stories that I want to tell and, and that's kind of just what I sat down to write. And, I suppose for my own reading too, I, I, I tend to read quite widely. I don't just read crime. I read anything that, that I enjoy and anything that I like. Um, so maybe there was an element too of just trying to exercise a different set of writing muscles. And in terms of looking back then, I suppose, over you know the past 15 years you have been writing, do you feel then that your approach to writing has changed or has evolved? Um, I, I don't know if it has. <laughs> maybe it should have. Obviously it should have. But I mean... I, I, I tend not to plan really beyond. I, I, I tend to break books into thirds um, and I tend to kind of plan a third at a time. So I will know what's happening in the first third or so of the book when I start it. Uh, and then as I'm writing that first third, I'll start thinking about, right, where's the middle third going to go? Um, and that is still, even with The Last Crossing, The Last Crossing's kind of broken up into three pieces. Um, I've just finished the book now and it's broken up into three parts as well. So kind of structurally I think I'm still approaching it in the same way in terms of the actual writing of it perhaps I've just got a little bit more confident um, in, in my own ability to be able to know when a story has the legs to sustain kind of 80, 90,000 words um, and, and and I suppose I'm enjoying writing now I mean I, I kind of loved the writing Borderlands was just a labour of love and then it kind of starts to become a little bit like work Um Whereas I, I really just am enjoying writing now just for the sake of sitting writing and telling stories. And you mentioned there as well that you break it up into thirds and that you don't plot, but you are writing crime. So, I mean, do you know who did it when you're starting off? Or are you waiting until you get to that final third? Um, not always. No, I kind of work it out as I'm going along. I mean, sometimes um, I will know some labor for Gallows Lane, for example, I knew because particularly the Devlin books, there tends to be a couple of different plot strands running. Um, and with Gallows Lane, I knew how one of those plus strands was going to end, but not how the rest would end. Um, with the, with uh, Little Girl Lost, I actually did know from the start who I wanted to have committed the crime. And then I was so worried by about three quarters of the way through that I'd made it too obvious that I changed it. Right. Um, because I kind of felt like, well, I, if, if I know, everybody else is going to know. Um, so I, I do tend, sometimes I've got a kind of general idea, and it might be I have an idea of who has done it, but not why. 
or it might be have an idea of why it's happened, but not who did it. Um, and then the writing of it is a way for me to kind of work that out. And it means, I suppose from a selfish point of view, it keeps me coming back day after day to write because if, if I need to find out the answer, it encourages me to kind of to, to write it and, and work that out. And how long is it taking you now to write a book? Um, about, well, I, I, I said this before and a friend of mine who's also a writer kind of corrected me on it, so I need to be very careful <laughs> with this. The actual physical writing of it probably takes about six weeks um, right. there or thereabouts. Blood ties, I started on the 20th of June last year, which is the opening date in the book. Um, and I think I had it finished by the start of August. Um, and the one that I finished this week, I started in February. So the actual physical writing of it takes about six weeks because I aim to do kind of at least a thousand words a day. Um, and that's the, the books all tend to be kind of 80,000 ish words. Um, so you're looking kind of between two and three months. But that does seem um, quite quick, Brian, as well. I mean, is it a case that you just have to knuckle down and get on with it? Or are you doing lots of research beforehand? Oh, yeah, you're doing a lot of research beforehand. And, and that kind of thinking of the first the first third, I mean, what, what I tend to find is I tend to think obsessively about the book as I'm writing it. Um, so once I am kind of writing, I will wake at six or half six in the morning and that'll be the first thought in my head. I'll be right. Why, why are they doing that? Why has that happened? Where's that going? What? And, and that's quite exhausting. Um, so at least if it's kind of in a compressed time period, so you're, that, that compulsion to keep going is there. And a lot of the research on the kind of bigger things I will have done before I start writing. Um, so I'm not really researching as I'm going along. By the time I actually sit down to write it, it's probably already written somewhere in my head. Um, and it's more just about kind of getting it down onto the page then and i i tend to find in this this was something i suppose i learned from the early books if i take too long a break so if i started one and then i leave it sitting for a couple of weeks whenever i come back to it i end up going back and starting from the beginning again to try to remind myself what i'd written and as soon as you start rereading it you see all the mistakes <laughs> whereas if i just, if i just kind of ploy at it day after day for the six or eight weeks you have your first draft on and then you can go back and craft it and take your time and do everything else. But at least you have something there that you can work with. And just keep the momentum going, as you say. And the the latest one then, it is the next Ben Devlin. It took nine years for it to arrive. A lot of fans are very happy. Um, did you, I suppose I was going to say, did you feel you'd done finished business? But you've already said that really it depends on the story. If the story arrives, you'll write it. But it took a while for this one to arrive. Yeah, I mean, there was possibly a few reasons for it. I mean, part of it was, I mean, I've kind of mentioned already the background in terms of the Lucy books. Um, I think part of it too, though, was that Devlin, for me, is very much associated with the border um, and with that border territory. And kind of post post the Good Friday Agreement, post the peace process, the border kind of vanished a bit. Um, and, and we almost forgot about it. Um, and I felt by the time I'd got the, the fifth book, I think on some level, maybe I kind of felt right. I've said as much as there is to kind of say at the moment. If there's another story that I need to tell or that I want to tell, I will. Um, and I do think that the Brexit vote to an extent kind of reforced, particularly those of us who live on the border, kind of reforced us to have to think about it and, and reinforced its existence in a way that hadn't happened for, for kind of 20 years. Um, and, and so, kind of, I mean, I, I, I live in Strabane. I live a couple of hundred yards away from the border. Um, and having not 
thought about it or spoken about it for years. All of a sudden, there were signs appearing back up on the border, kind of anti-Brexit signs. And there was that conversation about checkpoints. And the, the, the border kind of came back into the national psyche to an extent. Um, and I mean, the other thing is that one of the benefits of the border vanishing was that that sense of kind of tribalism and identity uh, that's so rife um, kind of a, a, abated as well. Um, and, and again, one of the things that Brexit has done, I think, is made people start thinking again about identity and about what side they're on and and how they identify and that idea about what passport are you going to have? And are you British? Are you Irish? Are you Northern Irish? Are you all three? Are you none of those? Um, and, and that's that's why this book is very much about identity. I mean, all of the books, I think I could probably say in one word, right, that's what that book is about. And Blood Ties is very much a book about identity. Um, and I think that was part, partly because of the, the not, not as a direct result of the Brexit vote, but partly because the Brexit vote made the border become a presence again in a way that it hadn't been for a while. And maybe that was why... I kind of felt I wanted to go back to Devlin. Plus, as I say, Devlin is very much a reflection of the things that concern me. Um, and I, I, I lost my dad two years ago. Um, and I, I, I wanted to write about that. Um, partly I wanted to write about the grief and partly I wanted to write about the type of person that my father was because he was great. And, mm -hmm. and I kind of wanted everyone to know that he was great. Um, and... Again, Devlin was a way for me to explore that, and so one of the big the one of the big plot lines in this book is about Devlin's father who is dying, um, and I mean that's not giving anything away because he says it in the prologue, um, and and so that again, Devlin was the obvious vehicle for me to to, to do that. And the book you've just finished now, what's that about? Um, it's about <laughs> a mother um, who has lost her daughter, whose daughter goes missing. Um, and it's broken up into three sections. So the first section of it is the first three days after the, the, the girl goes missing. The middle section is three months after she has gone missing. And the last section is three years after she's gone missing. Um, and it's it's very different from any of the other books. Um, it's kind of a companion piece in a way to The Last Crossing. It's also the first that I've written that's not set in Ireland at all. Right. Um, I, 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 that wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, again, it was just the story that, that kind of presented itself and that I wanted to tell. But again, it was one that I've kind of thought about for a while and been trying to work out how to tell for a while. And it just kind of clicked for me, um, for me earlier this year. So we'll see. I, I, I don't know if the publisher will want it or not. <laughs> we'll um, we'll so. soon find out. Well, we let you have a little break, but what are you going to work on then after that? Um, well, I definitely, I mean, my, my plan and what I had said to the publisher was that I was going to do another Devlin, so I am going to do another Devlin. Uh, and I kind of know what the story is um, and have the kind of the start of it in my head. Um, so I certainly, I, I certainly do intend to do another Devlin. Um, but this one, it was more actually just, it, it was a matter of I needed to get it out of my head. The story was there and I, I kind of, now that I've got it down on paper, it's, it's kind of out there and I can start thinking about the next Devlin now. 
And before we go, Brian, I think it's it's funny that you mentioned at the very start that it was hard to get a publisher in 2007 because your book was a crime novel and they didn't feel that it could, could sort of fit. Now we have a wealth of, of Northern Noir, as we call it. Um, you know, Adrian McGinty, Steve Kavanagh, Claire McGowan, Stuart Neville, Sharon Dempsey, Owen McNamee. There's, there's a range, like it's such a brilliant, um, a, a brilliant setting, brilliant genre, brilliant group of, of authors and, and you're part of that. You know, is it, I'm assuming it's probably a very supportive group, but isn't it amazing how it's changed so much in, in quite a short period of time? Absolutely. And, and it is. Funnily enough, I found today uh, on my Facebook memories, there was a photograph come up from five years ago um, of myself and um, Adrian and uh, Jared Brennan and Steve and Stuart Neville. We had all met up for a night out. Um, and I, I sent it to them and said this five years ago, maybe we'll manage to do this again someday. And even the fact, the way that that has changed, um, because, I mean, even five, six years ago, it was predominantly men in Northern Ireland who were writing mm-hmm. crime. And now there's this fantastic influx of people like, as you say, Sharon Dempsey and uh, Claire McGowan ha- had been even then, Claire Allen, uh, Kelly Crichton. I mean, there's all these voices mm-hmm. now um, that, that, that Northern Noir needed. Um, it doesn't massively surprise me that it's crime that, mm. that Northern writers have focused on because one of the things about crime is, as I kind of mentioned earlier, that that link between the past and the present. Um, and the crime novel starts at the end of something, uh, particularly the procedural starts at the end of someone's story. And while the narrative is, is moving forward, it's constantly looking backwards. So you have a detective who's trying to solve the crime, but in order to solve the crime, they have to solve the crime. They have to look back and work out everything that had happened that led to the point at the start of the book. Um, and and that to me is very much it's the only thing that Northern Irish writers could do because particularly kind of post the Good Friday Agreement, there was that sense of right, we're now moving forward, but at the same time, we we need to kind of look back and reflect on what happened, having come through all that. We needed a little bit of distance, but we also needed a sense of, I suppose, in the absence of a truth commission, a sense of trying to make sense of of everything that had happened and what had led us to that point. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me that crime is the, the, the genre, the vehicle that a lot of Northern Irish writers have used, because it does allow you to do that. It does allow you to look at how the past has impacted on the present. Um, and it is obviously concerned with with justice and a sense of order and a sense of morality and a sense of what's right and and whether justice and kind of the law are necessarily the same thing. Um, and, and so it's, I mean, it's fantastic from a writer's point of view. It's great because they are such a supportive group of friends. Uh, and even when my dad passed away, um, Stuart and, uh, and, and Steve and um, Dave Torrance, who runs No Alibis, came down to the funeral and were there. And just so, many, so many of the others kind of contacted me. There's just that real sense of camaraderie and of friendship. Um, and I mean, it, it's also crime readers don't buy one book a year. It's not a competition where we're kind of yeah. fighting over the same reader. Somebody who reads one will read more. If somebody reads one Northern Irish crime novel and goes, yeah, that worked they're more likely to read some of the rest of us. Um, and, and so I think we're all kind of fighting one another's corner because it is that sense of rising tide floats all boats. Um, so it's it's great to see and it's lovely to be a part of. And so they're really 
kind of supportive, good group of people. Well, Brian McGilloway, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find Blood Ties online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production.